Hello, everyone, and thank you uh, for joining us today for Everyone Has a Story with Jeanette Gilman and Jennifer Coburn. Uh, it's delight I'm delighted that you have taken time out of your schedule to be with us. We have a nice cr crowd growing, and uh, hello, everyone, friends who I know and friends who are new, uh, and I hope to uh, get to meet with you um, we are really excited to have uh, certain, obviously, members join us. Ruth Lindemann, who's there, wave your hand, Ruth, who's a survivor, uh, Tibor and Naomi uh, Spitz, who are survivors. And as I look through uh, the group, I wish all of you would um, turn on your cameras, if you have cameras, uh, to uh, so we can see you and acknowledge you. Um, What I'd like to do is, um, you know, I had something uh, hit me in uh, in the end of December, which was the fact that we went over 9,000 members and um, viewers in our various digital platforms and listeners on all of our podcast platforms. And so we do have a sizable uh, group here worldwide that, uh, and I'm if I'm a little bit shaky here, it's because I'm admitting people as we as I'm speaking, so I'm having a dual role. The um, I think we have a very powerful megaphone, and we have to use that megaphone as a group to look for situations that are happening in the world. Certainly, uh, I started in nineteen in in twenty twenty two talking about anti semitism in a very strong way. I, I wanted to launch the JCR now. Dot com website. And if you haven't visited us, I hope you will and join and be part of the discussion going on um, there every day. I call it um, Everything Jewish Every Day. Um, I'm posting articles from around the world about all things Jewish, so I hope it will attract you. Uh, and what has really caught my attention is the protests going on for women in Iran. And so I'm dedicating this program to the, um, and I wanna put uh, another post in chat for those of you who have just joined us. So I'm gonna do that and you can see uh, what I'm referring to. Um, so I wanna call out the human rights violations for the women in Iran. And I'm going to start the program a little differently than I normally do with a very powerful um, set of music uh, that'll start us off, and then we will go right into uh, an introduction for Jeanette. And I want to also introduce Rosa. Rosa, if you have a hand, raise your hand. Rosa um, Belson is with um, Jeanette, their sisters. Um, and there's Rosa in the bottom corner that I see. There you go. And so um, let me start off the program this way. We're going to sing a song now that uh, right now is being sung by many people in Iran and many of the Persian diaspora, people who left Iran after the revolution. And uh, I don't know if you've seen on the news, but young women and young people are fighting for their freedom, for the right to be themselves. And we believe as a band that everybody should be able to be themselves as long as you don't hurt anybody else. So we fully send our love and support to all of those brave young people uh, fighting for freedom. And there's a song that they sing which is called Baraye by an artist called Shervin Hajipur. 
who is uh, in trouble with the authorities just for writing a song about people being free. So we're going to sing his song and we're going to ask our friend Gol, who's an Iranian movie star, to please come and help us sing. Please welcome Gol Shifte Farahani. And, uh, you, you may not know this song, but we've got to give it everything because uh, we're going to send this with love from here to Iran. And here we go.
برای توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولیت رو درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و احتمال انقرازش برای سگهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای این بهشت اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعار های تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشالی از شبای طولانی برای غرصای حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهن آبادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی And so welcome back and uh, thank you for your attention to that. I'm going to now um, start the program. We're going to be uh, starting with Jeanette Gelman, who is a Venezuelan professor, a researcher and writer. She was born in, I apologize if I don't get this right, Secession, Poland in 1946 to Polish Holocaust survivors who came from Wadowa. Jeanette's family immigrated to Venezuela, settling in Maracaibo. She received her undergraduate degree in French from Wellesley College. And in 1970, she went to receive an MA in Spanish literature from New York University via an extension program in Madrid in 1976. Um, she um, is a second generation Holocaust survivor. Her parents' trauma was always present in her life and felt the need to understand what happened to the family she never had. Um, and welcome, uh, Jeanette, to the program. And I'm going to get your uh, PowerPoint up in a second. So hold a minute. Um, sorry. So welcome to the program, Jeanette. You can take it away. Hi, 
Thank you, Jeffrey. Thank you very much for hosting this conversation. Uh, first of all, good afternoon to, and maybe good morning to some people in California on the, in, a, in another country. Uh, thank you for being here. And I want to thank uh, my sister Rosa for participating and, and say hello to Jennifer. We're going to be together in this program. Okay, so I'll take it off from here. As you all know, Jeffrey well said, my name is Jeanette Grunhaus de Gelman, and I'm daughter of survivors from Lodava, Poland. Um, I would like to talk briefly about how this book came about. Growing in Maracaibo, Venezuela, where my parents had settled after the Holocaust, I was often affected by a, I was often affected uh, by a feeling of loneliness. My friends had cousins, had uncles and aunts and uncles, I had grandparents, and I had nobody. And that made, that made me very sad. This feeling of loneliness uh, stayed with me during my whole life until very late in my life, uh, I had understood why I was, uh, we were just my parents and my siblings and me, I understood that all our relatives had been murdered in the Holocaust, immediate family, immediate circle. And um, I decided that very late in life, I decided that it, I had to explain this to my children and my grandchildren so they would know what my parents went through. Um, this way we could leave a legacy for the family. So we remember our parents, so we would be proud of our parents and would honor them and honor their memory. So I decided to write the book. The book was written first in Spanish and it came out in 2018 with the title in Los Dias Claros Cantábamos. And it was recently published in English in 2022 uh, with the title On Sunny Days We Sang. Uh, today, I was intending to talk to you a little bit about uh, the Holocaust in Vlodava. Um, and you will see why. It's a, it's a different story. It's, not, it's a story of camps and not directly. So it's a story that merits to be told. My, my parents, Number two, please. Uh, okay. Uh, my parents, sole survivors of their immediate families, were born in Blodava, Poland. Um, they were second cousins, but they were from different generations. There's Blodava in the map. They were from different generations. My father was born in 1904. My mother was born in 1924. So they knew of each other, but they didn't relate till much later in in the in the during the war. Lodava, as you can see, is a, it is a small town. It could be considered a shtetl uh, on the border of the ancient Soviet uh, Union on the, on the banks of, the river, of a famous river called Buk. Uh, Lodava in 1939 had 9,500 inhabitants, 60% of which were Jewish, as you can, as you can see. That is 5,600 were Jews. And the Kaila was very, very, very well organized. It was a well organized community. Um, sl slides three and four, please. Uh, my father, Hill, Yahil Mayor, three and four, please. Yahil Mayor uh, was, thank you. That's my father's family. My father, Hill, was born in 1904 into a well, well off Orthodox family. His father was in the lumber business as they had been for generations. And uh, he was very active in Zionist activities. 
My father, we don't know much about his education, but we the details, but we do know. No, no, not yet. Not yet. Sorry, 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 sorry. That's all right. Stay there. Thank you. But we do know that he spoke Polish very well. If not, he wouldn't have survived the war so easily. Not easily, but he wouldn't have survived the war. He also spoke Yiddish and he spoke Hebrew. Uh, as a youngster, he separated himself for, from a strict religious orthodoxy that his, his family had because he became a very uh, stern Zionist. And uh, he participated in all the Zionist activities in Rodava. And he was, uh, he was even secretary of the Keren Kayemet Le Israel for two periods. In 1924, my father decided to emigrate to Palestine, um, not for economic reasons, but for, ideally, yeah, for his ideals. But he only stayed two years from 1926 because his father needed him. He returned to Rodava to help his father with the business. But in 1928, he moved to another city called Dinya, which is in Northern Poland on the Baltic Sea. And he opened there a lumber mill and other businesses related to, to lumber and continue with the family tradition. My mother, born in 1924, she was called Hannah Schengel, but she became known as Alexandra, which is the, num the name that she adopted during the, uh, during the war when he got her false papers. And she decided to keep this name. So we knew her as Alejandra all her life and all her friends. And she was born to a Hasidic family. Her father was a businessman. He was a follower of the Ratzin rabbi. And he was very religious. His life, of course, evolved around religion. Um, he was not involved in community affairs. He just followed his religious calendar. Uh, my mother attended public school and attended another school called Beit Yaakov in the afternoon to learn about Judaism. And this is an important uh, school for little girls in Rodava because that way they learned everything about Jewish studies. She was a good student. She liked to go to school. She liked public school. She liked uh, uh, Beit Yaakov. And she had a lot of friends. She enjoyed, her, she enjoyed herself. Uh, she remembers her town. She remembers uh, how activities uh, related to the Jewish holidays, Purim, Hanukkah, what the festivities they, they had in the town with everybody. And she remembers a lot of things that she used to do uh, related to nature because since she was from the Hasidic family, that's what she did. She went to the parks, she went to the Boog River, she went across uh, the bridge with her grandmother to Tomaszewska. She spent summers with her little brother Abrubale in Blodavka in, uh, in a house that the parents had, uh, his father, her father had rented for them. And those recollections of nature, picking berries, picking mushrooms, in the winter doing snowman, sledding, those were part of my mother's most precious recollections of life in her town as she called it. Next slide, please. Uh, okay, September 1st, 1939, as we all know, the war broke out. Abdeldava was bombed two days later, and then the Germans installed, came and stayed in Abdeldava. My mother was going to, she, she was going to be 15 at the time, but she quickly observed what was gonna happen. 
in her own words, and allow me to read a paragraph. The beginning of the war was terrible. Every day, the Germans required something different. First, they forced the residents to form a Judenrat, Jewish council, to administer and enforce German orders. Then they set up a Jewish order service. They seized any Jew to do forced labor and then restricted many more liberties, as for example, the right to attend schools, go to public spaces, own businesses, trailer poles, travel out of the city, and many more. Next slide, please. In November 1939, a person called Richard Nitschke arrived to Rudava to be the chief of the Gestapo. With his arrival, the situation really worsened, and the restrictions and the aggressions grew. Uh, I'll just name a few. Uh, it was then that the Jews were forced to wear a white armband with a blue star of David. All the businesses were um, well confiscated, and the food and many more ranchers, as you can see. And the food um, and the important thing it was was that the food rationing began. From the start, the Germans had set out to to put the to drive the Jews into extreme poverty, and they were very quickly getting there. Uh, in 1940, something important happened was that a few uh, various uh, three German firms came to Rodava to install themselves there. One, the biggest one called Rode, was the one that was in charge to dry up the swamps and canalize the waters. To, to be the director of this company arrived a person, Bernard Falkenberg. This person was going to be very important and instrumental in the life of Lodaba because from the very beginning, even though he was a German, he understood that the Nazis were set out to eliminate all the Jews. And he, in his own way, was going to help them without saying anything. He started employing 180 Jews. And by the beginning of 1942, he already had, had 1,500 to 2,000. Why was it, this was important? This was important because the person, the Jews that worked for him got a work permit. And a work permit meant that if you were detained in the street or in other places, you would be liberated because you were working. That on the one hand. And the other hand, they got a little better rationing, a little better food, a little more food. Falkenberg, without saying anything, helped many Jews. And uh, he saved many lives. That's why after the war in 1969, Falkenberg was named Righteous Among the Nations by Yad Vashem. Uh, Falkenberg was also very important in my father's life. They became good friends and Falkenberg was the one responsible for providing him with two false, false, ident false, false but good IDs in 1942. And he also hid him in his house at the very end when the last roundup uh, happened. Okay, so uh, Lodano was a town where the Germans decided to concentrate Jews. So they came from the surrounding areas and the situation became dire, very, very difficult. There was no place to lodge thousands of, of people, which is what, what came, the numbers that came. There was no, no way to lodge, no place to lodge them. So they just stayed in the streets they had no food, they got sick. The situation was very, very difficult. Uh, at the beginning of the war, 
the Germans arrived in Dinia, where my father was, in the September 16th of 1939. They confiscated all his businesses, he had more than one, and he was forced to come back to Vlodava. For the rest, for the first two years of the war, my father got a, found a job in Warsaw, and he would go and work for the streetcars, laying the tracks. He did that until the beginning of 1942. My, next, uh, next slide, please. My mother, my mother, who was 15 when the war broke out, that's my mother, uh, very pretty lady. Uh, she was 15 when the war broke out, barely 15. For the first year of the war, she had a, a little boy from a rich family that came to her house and she taught him how to read and write. And then the second year she was teaching all these little kid children that she has here. And uh, she did that for the second year. But then after that in 1942, she needed a work permit. So she went to work with one of the, another German that was installed in Ludava uh, doing foresting. And that's the way she got, uh, she had a, a work permit. 1942 was also a pivotal year in the life of, in Rodava. Uh, about 10, eight kilometers from Rodava, Sobibor was built. Sobibor is one of the six extermination camps that the Nazi had. And it was eight kilometers from Rodava. They finished it in May. Uh, what happened was that in that month of May, two men, came to Vlodava naked. These were workers, two workers that had been working with the other guys in the construction of Sobibor. And the Germans, once they finished the construction of Sobibor and the gas chambers, they put everybody through the gas chambers and killed them so they wouldn't say anything. But these two managed to escape. They arrived in Vlodava and nobody believed them because who was gonna believe that this was happening? But there was a rabbi there called Shlomo Lehrner from the Ratzine, Ratzine, uh, from Ratzin, and he believed, he believed, he did believe the two people, and he warned the youngsters and said to them, you have to, you have to resist, and you have to fight against the Germans, and you have to go away from here because we are all going to be killed. Of course, the rabbi was killed a few a week later after they heard that he was uh, telling the uh, these uh, talking like this to the, to the youngsters. And he also ordered three days of fasting. So he was imprisoned and killed uh, a week later. So now we're in a situation where the Germans, for these the first year since 1939 to the beginning of 1942, the killings in Vlodava were not systematic. If somebody uh, didn't obey one of the orders, he was killed. If somebody didn't want to work, that person was killed. And they were they were ran, randomly selected and killed. There were killings, but it was not systematic. As soon as Sobibor was ready, systematic killings began. Uh, plate nine, please. Set the next one. Okay, so what happened? In Blodava, they had five roundups or axioms. With these five roundups, they eliminated all Jewish life out of Moldova. Uh, they began in May 2024, May 22nd in 1942. Uh, the first two roundups were very small and they were targeted. 
targeted, by targeted, I mean they were directed to some people, directly to people. The first farm that was direct, directed towards the Austrian Jews, there were some many Austrians in Vlodava that had come on their way to Sobibor, to the elderly and the sick. As you can see, 1,700 Jews were killed in that, in that roundup and were sent to Sobibor. 700 of them were Austrian Jews. The second roundup was directed to children, and it was a some small roundup. In this roundup, we lost my aunt Deborah, my mother's sister, her husband, and her two little children. Next slide, please. Then came the October 24, 1942, came the big roundup. This big roundup, as you can see, 5,400 to 7,000 people were sent to Sobibor. Uh, how was this done? The first two were targeted, and the people that had work permits were not could avoid the roundup, and they were not taken to Sobibor. But in this roundup, there were many, many, many Jews from the surroundings that had come had been forced to come to Vlodava. They were lying on the streets. They had no food. So it was a terrible situation. So the Nazis didn't have to search the houses. They just picked up everybody that was on the streets and took them to Sobibor. It was a huge roundup. In this roundup, um, we only lost my grandmother, Rosa. The rest of the family was saved. Uh, I have to say one thing for my for my pater, I'm sorry, for my maternal grandfather, Moses. He, from the very beginning, said to his family, when the Germans call for a meeting or for a relocation, they called it relocation. They called the people to be relocated. You don't go anywhere, you hide. So in this roundup, all of my mother's family was hidden. Nobody went to the convocation and nobody was found because they didn't search the houses. They had so many people on the streets that they didn't have to search. So my mother's family, were all there, uh, except for her sister that had been killed in, in the, with the children's section. My father's family, there were not many members there. My grandmother was there, but my grandfather had been sent to Kovul, where he had two daughters uh, to be with them. They thought that if they separated both of them, maybe one would survive. So that was the idea. But my brother, my father was there with his brother Leo, his wife, and his family. In this third roundup, my grandmother Rosa was caught, and she was sent to Sobibor. So after the after these three actions, uh, during this third action, Falkenberg tried to save his workers because they were taken. Many were taken to the to the stadium where they met their faith, and from there they, they were taken to the to Sobibor in, in cattle cars. Uh, but Falconer tried to save them, but he was able to save only 400 people. So after this third roundup in Ludava, they created two things. One was called a lager, which was a working camp, and the other one was a ghetto. The lager had the Falconer's people there, they were the workers and they got their, their work permit, not that then it mattered much. And the ghetto was the rest of the people. Now they were there and they were separated in the lager where mainly 
were mainly uh, uh, younger people that could work, and in the, the rest were families were all in the ghetto. Next slide, please. Okay, then uh, right away, right, right after that, there was another uh, roundup, the fourth action. It was only in the ghetto. They didn't touch the people in the lager and uh, they got, they killed. It was very cruel and very violent. They killed people on the streets. You see 300 shot in the streets and, and 800 were sent to Sobibor. After that, the lager and the ghetto were sealed. They were really separated. There were a few months, six months of, pay, of peace and people were, being a little bit confident, but everybody was trying to buy, to build or to find a high-end place just in case. And indeed it was needed because April 30, 1943, there was the fifth roundup or the fifth action. And with this fifth action, all the Jews in Vlodava were liquidated. They searched the houses very violently everywhere and they, everybody was liquidated. They finally were managing to do to have Ludaba become Jude and Rhine, which means which means without Jews. What happened to my parents in this roundup? Okay, my mother and her sister were in the lager because they worked. They had work permits. In the meantime, in the six months that this lasted, they had uh, with some friends they had built a hiding place in their underneath their kitchen because their house was within the lager. So they had built a hiding space. They caved it. They took the all the sand out. They managed to do it. And when the fixed act, fifth action started, all the people knew where people that were that were in the lava knew where to go for if an action happened. And everybody, my mother and her sister and her best friend with her family and many others, hid in that in underneath the kitchen in her in the house. They stayed there for three days. At the third day, some youngsters that were with them decided to go out and see what was gonna, what was happening. And uh, they saw that the Germans were not there. So they all ran away. They ran out of the hiding place and they went to the woods. And then two days later, they went to a place called Adampol, which was uh, uh, 15 kilometers of, of Lodaba, where there were still Jews alive and working. Uh, so my mother escaped with her family, with her sister, but her father, who was in the ghetto, and uh, her, her brother with his family, both families, they didn't survive this fifth action. My father was on the other, was also in the lager with his brother Leo, and they hid. But Leo has Leo had uh, a son and a little daughter, and one of them cried, and the Germans found them. My father started running and managed to hide in an attic for a day and a half, and then he went to Falkenberg's house, and Falkenberg hid him on, for a few days, and then he told him, Falkenberg said, you have to leave because you will be caught here. So my father went to, left the, the town and went to the woods, and he found a partisan, a group of partisans that were there. The partisans took him in, but my father was too old already. He was 39 and 39 at the time. So he couldn't run here and there with the partisans. So they found, found him a hiding place with a farmer. And uh, my father 
was with the farmland. My mother was in Adam Falls. Then the partisans um, saw, met with my mother and her group and told my mother that my father was hiding in Adam in Potpacule with the farmer, that she should go and hide with him. But the farmer only wanted to receive one person. So my father said, one of you, either you or your sister Esther come and I will go to Warsaw. So my father left for Warsaw and my mother and Esther and my mother had to decide who was gonna to go to the farmer's house and hide. Esther was older than my mother. And she said to her, you go, I will manage. So my mother went and that was the last time she saw Esther because afterwards in another roundup in Adampol, my aunt Esther was killed. So my mother is hiding in the in Potpacule with the farmer, and my father is in Warsaw. In November, my father sent somebody to pick my mother up. This is, as I said, where my father and my mother started their story together, because before each one was on its own, on its own. So now they start their story together. They're both in Warsaw. My mother is hiding in one apartment. My father is hiding in another one. And they stay there until the next year in 1944, there's a Polish uprising in Warsaw, Polish uprising against the Nazis. And the uprising was not successful. So the Nazis killed more than 200,000 Poles in Warsaw and evacuated all the population. When, when my mother and my father were evacuated, they had the choice to go and do and work in Germany. They could also go into another town in Poland. But my father said to my mother, he was the one that always decided what to do. He said to my mother, we shouldn't stay in Poland. The Poles recognize the Jews. We have to leave. We're going to go to Germany. So they went to, they were sent to the, to a place called Leopschutz in Upper Silesia. Next slide, please. Oh, okay. Uh, and the next one, please. Okay, here. They went to a place called, uh, here, below here, Lambsdorff, Leopschutz, and there they worked between, uh, from October 1944 to March 1945, when the Rus they were liberated by the Russians. I must say a little something. Uh, working in Germany for many was considered slave labor, but my parents didn't have a very tough time. My father worked here in Little Schutz. He worked at a textile company and my mother worked with the farmers. Okay, so March 24, 1945, they're liberated by the Russians. And my father says to my mother, we have to return. We have to return to Rodava, to Poland, and to Rodava to see if anybody survived. So they start their, their way back. They start their way back, and they arrive in Rodava uh, April, May, just when the war was ending. Uh, my mother said that all during her escape and her, her hiding, she always had the... She always hoped, she had the hope that somebody would survive like her, Heidi, even though it was not probable. My father didn't have those expectations because he knew that his mother had been killed in the third roundup and then his brother and his family were killed in the last roundup. 
So he didn't have expectations, but my mother did. She said that when she saw that the that nobody had survived, she got very depressed and she started thinking that why did she survive and why did she know not exchange places with Esther when one of them had to hide. So her depression really started there a little bit. She also always said that she owed her survival to various people. First, her father, who always directed them to hide. Then Esther, her sister, who was the one that was guiding her. Then my father, of course. But then there was a last element that was luck. They all had to have luck. Okay, so my parents come back to Polodava and they decide that they're not going to stay because there's nothing there. My father used to say, we have no family, we have no business because the communists had arrived, so they left. I was born on the way. Uh, can we have one more slide? No, 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 I'm, no, 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 don't. Uh, if you look there to the left at the top of the map, there's a city called Stettin. That's where I was born because my parents... Uh, the the Poles, the Polish government sent the Jews to to stay at this town because right after the war there was a huge anti-Semitism anti in Poland. They even had two pogroms after the war in Krakow and in Kielce. And the Poles were very anti-Semitic all the time. So they sent them to Stettin, which was a city where there were no Poles because it had been under German control. And there they could live and calm a little bit until something was decided. So my father said, we're leaving. And after I was born in January and March, we crossed over to Germany. From Germany, we arrived in Paris in August and we left for Venezuela in November. Uh, why Venezuela entered another place? They had three choices. One choice was in the United States. They had a friend that could help them. But my father did not want to come to the United States. My mother, then the second choice was Palestine. And uh, my mother said, I don't want to go to a place. It, we're talking 1946. I'm not, I don't want to go to a place where there, there's going to be a war, where people are fighting. We just finished one war. I'm not going there. Third place was Venezuela. They didn't know where Venezuela was. But when they started asking, my father always says that the first thing that he heard was, you have to go there. The climate is beautiful. It's an eternal spring in Caracas. So they decided for Venezuela. And we arrived there in November 1946. In March, we moved from Caracas to Baracaibo because uh, my father found a job working in lumber in Maracaibo. He found a, uh, an associate and uh, he started working in lumber. It took Maracaibo, Venezuela was a very good country. People were gay, they were generous, they were not anti-Semitic, they received people well. It was a beautiful country. And also in Maracaibo, there was a small, very small Jewish community, but very, very organized and with very nice people. So my parents started rebuilding their lives here in Maracaibo and they did it successfully. Uh, it took them many years to organize their lives. And uh, by the 50s, the situation has changed a little bit. They were already very comfortable economically. 
Um, my mother, Rosa had been born. She was the last one in 1946. Uh, I'm sorry, in 1956. Um, our, our brother Leo in 1948. And uh, the family was, uh, was moving well. But then once they were established and they were settled, the demos of the past started returning. First, my mother fell in a very strong de depression that lasted some years. And I think Rosa is gonna talk a little more about that. And, uh, and my father, who we know from a cousin that was a very gay, happy man before the war, became very serious, very circumspect, very intellectual. He was only interested in his family and in Israel. Those were his topics. And he talked, he, he did participate, both of them did participate actively in the life of the community. And they also had a very intense social life because as I said, the community was very nice and they were very happy there. Uh, nevertheless, I think my father received a little bit of satisfaction when in 1964, he was called to be a witness in the trial of the Richard Nitschke, the Gestapo chief of Lodava and five of his helpers. So he went to Germany, he testified. The result of the trial was laughable. The, 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 the people were condemned to two years, one year, three years of prison. Very, very laughable sentences. But at least he went and he testified. We were not, I don't, I don't know if Rosa knows, but I don't think I know that if my, that if my father finally uh, found some relief or some peace, I would say, from the demons of the past. I don't really know. I'm not sure he did. But my mother, I think she did. First of all, starting in the 90s, she made, she tested, she was uh, a witness for the uh, Spielberg's uh, archives and she gave her her testimony and then in the year 2000 we went to Vlodava with a group of 13 survivors um, Rosa and Leo and me and my mother my father didn't live anymore and we went to Vlodava in the camps and after my mother came back from Vlodava she was in the hospital because she felt sick but all, during all those days she would tell me the only thing I can do is now talk about Ludaba. And she would tell me stories and more stories and more stories. I believe that then she had found, she made peace with her past. And especially, I think she made peace with her guilt. Um, I think I will let Rosa speak now, but before we finish, uh, can we, uh, Jeffrey, can we pass the plates to show the, my books? Yes, please. And then our family, how it grew beautifully. Here's a Spanish copy in 2018. And here's the English copy. The next one, please. Okay. And now, Jeffrey, please show us the photos of the family as it grew beautifully. That's my father and mother. Here are some children and grandchildren. 
Next one, please. Here are the three children with my father and my mother, the three of us. And finally, the grandchildren. So they did find in Maracaibo, not only with the community that became part of it, their family, they also created a family. Thank you. Uh, before Rosa speaks, I want to thank you for the honor of bringing your story uh, to our group. You're the first story about Sobibor that I have been able to um, curate and produce. And the facts now are recorded and they will live on. And anybody who is denying uh, Sobibor or denying the Holocaust will have your witness testimony as to what happened. Now, Rosa, if you don't mind, would you please just do a two sentence introduction about yourself, who you are, where you're living and what your um, profession is. So sure. where, where are you, Rosa? So we'll start. Yeah, so good morning, afternoon or evening, wherever you're joining us. Uh, it's morning for me, I'm in San Diego, California. Um, I go by Rosa Grunhouse Belser, the owner of the family. And I am a clinical psychologist, but I have been practicing more as a leadership development and executive coach for the last 20 years. Um, I first, um, I put a link to Janet's book uh, in English in Amazon, but you can find it in Spanish too, um, as well. First, I want to thank Janet for having written the book, because this, not only did she do a great detail story about our, our parents and their survival, but also about the area. So uh, you would you would um, see some, um, a lot of mentions about Subivor, since that's one of the things you, Jeffrey, um, mentioned that you were interested. So as you heard, I'm the third. So I was born in 1956. And um, I think um, what I would say from my perspective is that as Jeanette and Leon grew up in the survival and adaptation phase of the family, I grew up in the sort of like coping with life phase. Um, you know, they had established themselves financially. They were not rich, but they were comfortable. Um, they had friends, they had a community, they were active. But then, like Janet said, the demons of the war took a forefront in different ways, um, but primarily for my mother, I would say, from my experience, um, um, her depression became very severe. And uh, being the third and a baby, <laughs> I hear that I was, I cried a lot. So um, I probably didn't make it any easier, or maybe it was a combination about having a, a depressed mother. But she was very, um, uh, depressed and unavailable and dealing with her own loss. Um, so for me being, um, I had like a double generational trauma. I had the generational trauma of the war as well as coping with my mom's depression. Um, I would say that, uh, so my, my childhood was very colored by that and I felt enormous responsibility to be a good child. Um, I did not want to make my mom's suffering any worse. 
um, <laughs> the way I had to handle this is, um, and I'm very thankful that Janet stayed close to the family. I went to Israel. I felt for many reasons I had to get away to find a little bit of a space to deal with the trauma. And also because I felt very connected to the Zionistic um, father and mother, but they both were both um, lovers of Israel. Um, at the time that I went, they even bought an apartment with the idea that they um, they would move, but the Yom Kippur War started. And again, like Janet said, my mother's fear of being in a war determined that they were that they never moved. So I last want to say that, um, you know, Janet does a, a beautiful, detailed uh, story about how they adapted to Venezuela, the trip that we did back to Poland. For me, like Janet said, my mom also, I came into terms with my mother's um, with my mother, with my feelings for my mother. Um, therapy helped, <laughs> my own studies helped, and being a mother myself helped. And the the memories that I have of her in the latter years are of um, determined, independent, um, adventurous. Um, she even would come to San Diego by herself. And um, I think my children had memories of their Grandma, Abuela, like they call her, as a nurturing, generous, and um, and loving mom, uh, grandma. Uh, she loved to go to Las Vegas. So, um, and it used to be used around Passover. So we used to take our toaster over so we can do mata pizza in the hotels. And it was to a total adventure for my kids. Um, Janet showed pictures of the children, of all the grandchildren. Um, most of the grandchildren now have children of their own, not all of them, but most of them. I have, um, I have, be I became an abuela myself a year ago. And I think I've come full circle to um, allowing our family to grow. Um, again, I think Janet does an amazing book job in perpetuating uh, our story, giving voice um, to the unspeakable, and really um, is a story and documenting something that would stay for eternity, making sure that there's a voice against anti-Semitism, uh, against discrimination, and again, the suppression of others. So I'm extremely thankful um, for Thanks. her. Thank you, Rosa. And I know this was emotional for you to be able to be on screen and to share. Um, and I and I want to also um, point out that we have a connection, uh, Rosa and I, and also on board here is Solomon Pincheski. All are members of the second generation show group in San Diego. And we know each other uh, deeply from there. So, uh, and I uh, ran a movie club for the generations of the Shoah, and I know you were along uh, for many of those movie uh, club events. So uh, it's a very small community. We all share a thread that is global, uh, and it is very uh, special. So thank you very much for uh, being here. We're going to have questions and answers at the end of the presentation. We're coming up next will be uh, Jennifer Coburn, but I wanted to also go back to the theme of today's uh, is the freedom for the Iranian women and the protests going on in Iran. So our next uh, uh, musical uh, interlude 
is following. I'm sorry. Give me one second. The voice of Germany is out to stimme their mention in Iran. Wir sehen euch und wir stehen an eurer Seite. Für Menschlichkeit, für Selbstbestimmung und für Demokratie. Frauen leben Freiheit. Zendegi Azadi, woman, life, freedom. So thank you. And we're going to uh, go now to Jennifer. And Jennifer Coburn, uh, 
um, is the author of Cradles of the Reich, and it provides a cautionary tale for modern times told in stunning detail. Cradles of the Reich uncovers a little-known Nazi atrocity, the breeding of the master race. The book also carries an uplifting reminder of the power of women to set aside differences and to work together in solidarity in the face of oppression. And I'm going to uh, have the pleasure and honor to introduce um, Jennifer to the to the speaker uh, in a minute. Just give me one second to do what I need to do. Uh, yeah. Hold on a minute. And so Jennifer, I want to bring you in. And I want to so welcome, Jennifer, and I know that you have a bit of a brief introduction to your talk as well. So welcome oh. and welcome to the Jewish Culture and Holocaust Remembrance Group. Thank you so much, Jeffrey. And, I, you know, I've been here for the last hour. It's really um, an honor to share the screen with uh, Jeanette and Rosa and um, and hear their stories as well. Um, first, I'd like to ask, does everybody hear me OK? Yes. Does, Given, okay, great. Because I have papers in front of my my computer, and I don't want to. I want to make sure I'm not blocking my microphone. So, Cradles of the Reich. Why does a nice Jewish girl write a book called Cradles of the Reich about a Nazi breeding program? That is the question I was asked over and over and over when I was writing my novel, and finally I said. Mom, listen, I believe that we have so much to learn from the victims and survivors of the Shoah. I also feel that when we study the evils of anti-Semitism, we can take positive steps forward to preventing um, another genocide or oppression of people. So I felt it was important to learn about this Nazi breeding program, the eugenics-based baby farms in uh, many parts of Europe. So my story overlaps a bit uh, with Jeanette's and Rosa's. My family is originally from Poland, but my um, father's family moved to the United States, moved to Brooklyn, in the early 1900s. And then in the 1930s, when we they started hearing reports of anti-Semitism and the oppression of Jewish people in Europe, they started making plans for how to hide their own children. If I could get the next the first slide, please, Jeffrey. Sure, hold on a second. Thanks. So they were in Brooklyn, they shared a two-family house. So the next one, please. So they shared a two-family house with a German couple that lived downstairs. And that family volunteered to adopt my father, the toddler in the center, in order to save his life. The young woman on the right is my Aunt Bernice. Now, she was Gentile passing, so a local church offered her one of nine spots at a 
convent in upstate New York where they planned to hide Jewish girls if Hitler were to invade the United States. The young woman on the right is my Aunt Rita. Aunt Rita had polio and walked with a limp. So even if righteous Gentiles like the Kale family or the local parish wanted to save my Aunt Rita, there would be no hope for her if um, Hitler invaded the US. Thankfully, that never happened, but this, this history, this looming threat haunted my father throughout his life and in turn, mine. Next slide, please. Here I am in 1979, I'm 13 years old, and it is my turn to read the four questions at the Passover table. I had other questions on my mind that night though. I wanted to know if the Holocaust could ever happen again here. And my father, he echoed this fear. He often imagined what the United States would look like if Germany won the war. And the answer was always the same, absolutely horrific for families like ours. Next slide, please. A few years ago, there was a television series called The Man in the High Castle, which was based on the Philip K. Dick novel of the same name. Did anybody see that? If I could get some nods, did anybody see that, that uh, series? No, okay. Well, briefly, it um, creates a dystopian 1962 after Germany won the war and the United States is part of the Reich. There were so many disturbing elements of this show, but one that really struck me was when a beautiful German woman said that she was bred through the Nazi Lebensborn program. And um, I figured this has gotta be a fictional element that they made up for the show because there was also an episode where they blew up the Statue of Liberty, which thank God never happened. But curiosity got the better of me and I Googled Lebensborn program. And next slide, please. And this was the first image that I saw. It was then that I found out that the Lebensborn Society was real. It was a top secret breeding program that lasted 10 years from 1935 until the end of the war. Next slide, please. Adolf Hitler's second in command, Heinrich Himmler, had a plan to create 2 million racially valuable new children for the Reich. He called it the Lebensborn Society, and it operated in three ways. First, Aryan women and SS officers were coupled together for sexual liaisons and the resulting children would become property of the Reich and placed for adoption. Second, it was a maternity home for Aryan women who were already pregnant and mostly unmarried. There were some married women in the program, but mostly it was a home for unwed mothers. And third, when the war started in 1939, the Lebensborn Society expanded. Nazi soldiers 
identified blonde hair, blue eyed children in countries they occupied and they kidnapped them, brought them back to Germany for a process they called Germanization and then for adoption with good German families. In the end, 20,000 babies were produced for the Lebensborn Society and 200,000 children were stolen. Half of these children were kidnapped from Poland alone. They called these children the Polish orphans. And in some cases they were orphans already, but most, most, of the, most commonly the children were made orphans because the soldiers snatched the babies out of their mother's arms and killed their parents. Next slide, please. When I heard about this, I was horrified and also fascinated. I had a lot of questions about how this program worked. I wanted to know where these homes were, how the women were selected, and why. Why would women volunteer to have sex with strangers just to have a child for the Reich? And that's what they called this program, having a baby for Hitler. So I did what I always do when I want to learn about a period of history. I looked for a well-researched historical novel that would not only answer my questions about the program, but would tell me the stories of the women. I wanted to hear about the Lebensborn Society through the lens of women's friendships, relationships, and struggles. What I found was there were many nonfiction books, but no novels. So I decided to write the novel that I wanted to read with a book club. Now, Cradles of the Reich is not my first book. Before this, I published a travel memoir. My daughter and I, next slide, please. My daughter and I traveled to 12 European cities together, and I wrote a book called We'll Always Have Paris, which was light and fun, as you can see from the cover. And before that, I wrote six romantic comedies. So the move to writing about Nazis was not the next natural step for my career. But next slide, please. I could not stop thinking about this Lebensborn society. I couldn't stop thinking about how it existed in the same world at the same time and the same place as Nazi death camps. It was part of the same eugenics plan to create a so-called master race, but the Lebensborn Society by creating life rather than destroying it. It was two sides of the same evil coin. Throughout my life, I've never heard about Nazi Germany or the Holocaust without someone quickly reminding me that we are to never forget. And as I mentioned in the introduction, I, I am deeply moved by the stories of survivors and victims of the Shoah. I also consider it important to study what the rise of fascism looks like so that we can recognize early warning signs. Through Cradles of the Reich, I aim to explore the three choices that Gentile citizens had in Germany. 
specifically women. There's the resistor. That, that point of view is represented by the character Gundi. Now, Gundi is what the Nazis considered perfection. She is tall, she's blonde, she has blue eyes, and she's beautiful. What they don't know about her, though, is that she is secretly part of the resistance and she's pregnant with a Jewish boyfriend's baby. Second is the bystander, represented by a nurse who works in the program, Irma. Irma is just kind of keeping her head down and trying to stay out of trouble through the war. And she, when she comes to work for the maternity home, she feels pretty good about the th what she's doing. She feels like she's serving these women in the program and she's helping her country. But then slowly, Irma comes to realize what this program is really about and what the Nazi true agenda is. And Irma has to make a choice. Whose side is she on? Now, the third character I wrote represents the Nazi true believer, which as a Jewish woman was really hard for me to write this character because it meant every night crawling into the skin of someone who really believed that the world would be a better place without me or my family in it. But I felt like I had to represent this point of view because those people happened. And this character is a representation of this German culture that descended to madness within the course of really two decades. So a pretty fast slide from a cultured civilization to a cult of hatred. The characters in my book, Cradles of the Reich, are fictional, but they are in a real Lebensborn home called Heim Hochland. Jeffrey, next slide, please. Heim Hochland was the first of the Lebensborn homes and it was located in Bavaria. There were also at least 26 other homes located throughout, Jeffrey, the next slide, please, throughout Germany, Belgium, France, Norway, Austria, Luxembourg, Holland, and Sweden. Young German women were eager to be part of this program, but why? Why would they do this? In order to understand that, I had, to, I had to really zoom out and study broader Nazi culture as it related to population and motherhood. At the end of World War I, the German birth rate started to decline and the German population started to slide down. So in the 1930s, the Nazi propaganda machine kicked into full gear in the area of motherhood and started to promote having large families, which is a family of four children or more, as a virtue. They called these families child rich, and they even started incentivizing having lots of children. Next slide, please. 
they awarded war medals, service medals to German women who had four or more healthy children. You got a bronze medal for having four or more children. Women who had six or more children received a silver medal. And women who had eight or more children received a gold medal. And they would wear these medals every day with pride. Next slide, please. Here is a mother with a mutter cross on her neck. I don't know if you can see it right there on her black dress, but she's an older mother. She has two children with her. And I am going to assume, or I, I can I, I believe that this mother adopted the baby that she's pushing in the stroller in order to round up the number of children in her family in order to receive a mutter cross. So the women in the Lebensborn homes who were becoming pregnant or already pregnant and placing their children for adoption, that was the supply side of this equation or of this economy. The demand side were these German mothers who had three children, five children, seven children, and agreed to adopt one more as an act of patriotism and so that they could get this war medal. So why did they care so much about this war medal? It was a huge status symbol. And when a woman wore this medal, members of the Hitler Youth or the girls branch of the Hitler Youth, the Bunderdusche Mädel, they had to stop and salute this woman as if she were the Fuhrer himself. Not, um, oh, so, so um, two reasons. The other reason, I'm sorry, it's a little early here and I've only had half a cup of coffee. But the other reason that they wanted to participate in this program is the Reich was expanding where the Nazis created this program. The Reich was expanding and they needed to populate these new territories with large Nazi families. So that's another reason that they promoted having lots of children. Next slide, please, Jeffrey. So they told young girls that the most important thing they could do, the most patriotic thing they could do was have babies and plenty of them. Not every woman qualified for this program. Next slide, please. Only 40% of the women who applied for the Lebensborn Society were accepted, <clears throat> whether they were already pregnant or willing to become pregnant. They had to demonstrate racial value. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be racially valuable in the eyes of the Nazi party? The young women had to demonstrate three generations of pure Aryan blood and three generations of no mental or physical um, poor health. So if your grandfather struggled with depression, you as a woman would be disqualified from the program. The Nazis also had racial screening tools to measure different criteria. Next slide, please. 
There were certain eye color, hair color, and skin colors that were acceptable, and certain facial features. Next slide, please. Certain facial features um, that were considered Aryan. Now, many of you have seen these racial screening tools when you visit Holocaust museums. So please forgive me if I am giving you information that you already know, but I feel like it bear it, it, it um, it's important enough to repeat because in every audience that I have, there are at least five people who have never seen these racial screening tools. In fact, when I was writing the book, I gave an early chapter, chapter one actually, where Gundy is in her doctor's office and she's having her hair, her eye color and her skin color coded by a Nazi doctor. And I gave the chapter to a friend and she said to me, you know, this seems really unrealistic. My friend is not only Jewish, she is the daughter of a Holocaust survivor. So I figured if she doesn't know about the racial screening tools, I need to include them in my presentation. And her comment led me to create a, a series of social media posts. If I can have the next slide, please. Called Factor Fiction. Oh, I'm sorry. No, it's okay. Called Factor Fiction. There we go. And every Friday, I post an element that appears in the book and give you the historical background. Because I want people to read this book and, and see that these hair swatches re were real. This isn't my active imagination. And there is also in the back of the book an extensive author's note that explains where I got my information from and what, you know, what is fictional and what is fact. And there's very little fiction, uh, only in areas where I, the research just wasn't there. So next slide, please. One of the facts that I put up on my social media is that these women, the ones who qualified for the program, went to live in large estates that were beautifully decorated with furniture and art, all stolen from Jewish people. And these young women had very few responsibilities. If they were already pregnant, they had to consume a prescribed amount of milk and fruits and vegetables prescribed by Heinrich Himmler because he had some very strict ideas about a pregnant woman's diet. And if the women were there to become pregnant, I will let you guess what her responsibilities, what their responsibilities were. Researching Cradles of the Reich was a project that gripped me like nothing ever has before. I knew that the Nazis began indoctrinating very young children through anti-Semitic stories like Der Gilfpilz. Slide, please side of Der Gilfpilz. Now, again, many of you have used, many of you have seen this, but Der Gilfpilz is the poisonous mushroom. And it is a story read to children who are three and four years old that warns them that Jewish people are like poisonous mushrooms. We may look harmless, but we are poison to the bowl. 
You know, I often wonder, like, how do children learn to become anti-Semites? How do children learn to hate? And this is part of the answer. They're read books like this. And they are also, next slide, please, indoctrinated into the party at two weeks old. This is a Nazi baby naming ceremony. I have a whole chapter on this in my, in my book, but at two weeks old, this baby is laid out on a pillow and is, is uh, the Nazi officer pulls his sword from its scabbard, places it on the baby's stomach and pronounces the child a member of the Nazi party in good standing at two weeks old. Next slide, please. Also, families were given board games like Judenraus. The whole family, mom, dad, and the kids would play this game, which the title translates to Jews Out. And the object of the game is to run six Jewish pegs off to Palestine. I also learned, next slide, that all children uh, born into the Lebensborn Society, the babies, were given a silver cup with their name inscribed on the front and the name of their godfather, Heinrich Himmler. And that is how many of these children discovered that they were products of the program. They were 70 years old, their parents passed away, and as they were cleaning the house, they went up to the attic, and in the very back there was a trunk, and in the very back of the trunk was a, a chamois that inside was a tarnished cup with their name on it, and they said, why? is Heinrich Himmler my godfather? And then they started digging and discovered their roots. They discovered that they were kidnapped from Czechoslovakia and Poland and Norway. Only 20% of these children ever found out what their roots were. 80% are in their 70s through 90s now or died not knowing that they were stolen or bred by the Nazis. Next slide, please. Actually, the next slide is just a picture of my book. So why don't we, and that's that's all for the slide. So why don't we expand the screen a little bit so I can see all these gorgeous faces. Thank you. And um, I'll tell you a little bit about the research because that's a question I'm often asked. I researched this book in all of the ways you would think. I read books, I watched documentary films, but what was most helpful to me was talking to subject matter experts or people who were there at the time. Because it was fairly easy for me to find when, what dates Germany invaded certain countries to find out about the Battle of the Bazura, to learn about the non-aggression pact between Germany and Russia. That's easy, that I can find in textbooks. What was hard and what came up on every single page were these mundane cultural details. Like in 1939, when a man put on his pants, did he button, snap, 
or zip them? Any any answers? Anybody want to unmute themselves and give an answer? Button. I, you did, uh, Judith. You did not unmute yourself, but I read your lips. You said button, and you're right. Um, it was button. I also wanted to know what were the rules of displaying propaganda? Nazis had a lot of rules. So I wanted to make sure that when you, the reader, walked through the streets of Berlin, Munich, and Frankfurt with me, or rather with my characters, that the propaganda that you were seeing was historically accurate, not only in the depictions, but in the way they were presented. Did they need to be six inches apart? Were they in themes? So I reached out to Dr. Randall Beitwork, who is the world's leading expert on Nazi propaganda. And he gave me a lot of information about this. His patients are endless. I'm, I'm consulting with him now on another book and I have to ask him questions about propaganda. Um, he was the one that told me, he said, hey, Jennifer, did you read yet about the baby naming ceremony? You know, the one with the sword. And I said, yes, I did hear about that. And I will have a chapter about that in my novel. And he said, let me send you the table setting so that you know where to put the portrait of Hitler, where to put the dried flowers and where to put the candles. So when I showed you that picture, that's not how a Nazi baby naming ceremony looks. That's how all of them were required to look. Another German native that I met was 90-year-old um, Rolf Schultz, who was seven years old on the pogroms that the Nazis called Kristallnacht. And he is a Gentile man who is heartbroken over what his country, the crimes that his country perpetrated. But when he was seven years old, he was told that he needed to join the Hitler Youth to protect his country from the Jews. Now, he could have told me anything. He could have said to me, Jennifer, I knew right from wrong when I was seven years old. I joined the, chi the child's branch of the, the resistance, but he didn't. He told me the truth about why he loved and followed Hitler. Hard, hard to hear this. But I did appreciate his honesty because it is only through understanding how Otherwise decent people are sold this bill of goods, this lie, this propaganda, and made them act in a heinous way. It's only through hearing their truth, hard as it is, that we can fight against this ever happening again. So I appreciated him telling me this truth. He also helped me with mundane cultural details. For example, I wanted to have a scene in Frankfurt where a woman remembered her marriage proposal. Now, in Frankfurt, there's this beautiful fountain of justice. And I thought, wouldn't it be sweet if this man threw a coin in a fountain and made a wish that Irma would be his bride? 
then I realized, oh, you know what? That may be an American thing where we throw coins into a fountain. So I called him and I said, "Is do you do that? Do you make uh, wishes on coins? And he said, wait one minute, hold on. Why is someone throwing away money? And I said, no, 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 just a fennig, just a penny. And he said, you listen to me. If you have a scene where a German is throwing away a coin, even a fennig, your next scene had better be six Germans jumping into that fountain in order to fight him for the fennig. So that is why you will not read in Cradles of the Reich um, a marriage proposal scene that, that includes uh, wishing on a coin. So there's a, a writer in Germany um, named uh, Bernhard Schlink. He wrote a book called The Reader, which was made into a movie. If I can see by nods of head, did anybody see the movie or read the book? Kate Winslet is in a bathtub. She likes Liam Neeson to read her. But okay, well, he wrote that book and he is an older German and he gave me a lot of culture checks. Like he read my manuscript and he said, Jennifer, you keep using the slang bumpsen for sex. But Germans didn't use the slang Bumpsen until 1952. And before that, we used Rumsen. Now, I ask you what history book I am going to find that in. So he gave me a lot of great information about, like I said, there was one scene where Gundy is going through the Jewish neighborhood and she's looking for her love interest, Leo Solomon. And she's bopping around with her blonde hair flying in the wind. And he said, no, 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 Jennifer, there's Gestapo on every street. Put a, sh a scarf over her head, cover her blonde hair. And he said, you don't need to have her popping into every Jewish owned business. She's going to be suspected of being a Jew lover. That's a tough term to hear. Um, and just have her, just have her go to the butcher in Germany. The butcher knows everybody. So that was, uh, you know, that was the biggest part of my research. Now I went down hundreds of rabbit holes to find, uh, cultural details, especially about birth. But I want to tell you one final rabbit hole story. And it is my favorite because it involves a rabbit. In, 19, in chapter two, you will meet Hilda, and that is the Nazi true believer character. And she's coming home from high school, gymnasium, and she smells that her mother is cooking Hassenpfeffer, a braised hair stew often prepared with red wine and bacon. And then I realized, you know, I'm writing this scene and it's taking place in April. And stew is kind of a hearty winter meal. Would they eat stew in April? So I reached out to Ursula Heinzelman, who is a food historian, like who knew this was a job, a food historian. And I asked her, would you eat, would German families eat stew in April? And she said, Judge, that's not your problem. Your problem is where are they going to find the rabbit when the rabbit's hunting, see by the way, she doesn't talk like this. It's just kind of fun for me to do the voice. Um, she says, you, you 
I'm not going to be able to find a rabbit in April. And I said, okay, Ursula, rabbit hunting season may have ended in December, but this is a high-ranking Nazi family. They could have hunted for rabbit anytime they wanted. And she said, mm, yeah, that's true. But in April, the rabbits are just coming out of hibernation. And the rabbits that are going to be hopping about are skinny and they won't have good juicy meat on them and they will not be good for a stew. So finally, I said, Ursula, how about this? They shot the rabbit in December. They froze the rabbit. And then in April, they defrosted the rabbit and then made the stew. And she said, oh, Joe, Joe, that's plausible. Yeah, that could happen. So when you read in chapter two, one line of internal dialogue where Hilda says, smells like mama's cooking Hasenpfeffer. I wonder where she found a rabbit this time of year, much less one plump and juicy enough to make a good Hasenpfeffer. That, my friends, is seven and a half hours of research. So um, that's, um, that is about Cradles of the Reich and my research. I find when I do these presentations that the most interesting part is hearing your questions, your comments about the Lebensborn program. Why the heck we've never heard of this program? I mean, I was 50-some years old before I had ever heard of this program. And um, and then also, you know, maybe if we want to talk about what's what's um, what are the parallels we're seeing today, I get that question a lot. So I'm open to conversation and discussion, and I really want to thank you for um, the invitation, Jeffrey, and for all of your attention today. Um, to, to the guests, and I look forward to continuing the dialogue with you. Thank you. Well, thank you. And you're also adding a first for our group programs to learn about this program from a different perspective, from a Jewish person who writes about a Nazi program. But before we open it up to everyone, I want to uh, do what I call the obligation of memory Lador Vador interviews. So I'm going to ask each of you what it was like to grow up in your your survivor parents' home. So, you know, what was it like for each of you to grow up? Now, we've started to hear a little bit from Rosa about what it was like, but I would like to hear, Jennifer, what it was like to uh, grow up in your survivor's home. So my family, they are not survivors. I see. Okay. They, um, and I, you know, and I, I said to I, many of you probably know Sandra Scheller, who's a, a Holocaust historian here in San Diego. I said to her, I feel a little bit guilty um, when people say, oh, um, are you know, are you a survivor? Because my family was here in in the United States. What they were were traumatized by fear. And those um, the the ripple, the reverberation of that fear went through generations. We have we have kids in our family who are uh, 19 and 20 years old, and they're still very um, angst-ridden over 
the fears of, of anti-Semitism and the Holocaust. And frankly, I think we should be. I mean, I don't, I, I, um, I had a, a doctor once say to me, like, you're very anxious. Should we put you on an anxiety medication? I said, no, I want to be anxious. I want to be on guard. I want to, you know, I want to make sure, I want to make sure I'm like, uh, fear, is a, fear is an okay thing. I'm, a, I'm well, comfortable with anxiety. It's, it's very good because we have a psychologist sitting right next to you on the tile. So she's right, yeah. nodding her head. And stuff. But what was it like to live with your father's fear? Now, you have a different fear about the, I mean, you're the first person who was brought vocally that there was a fear of Nazi fascism coming to the United States. And your father had tremendous fear over that. So that must have also entered your own household, wouldn't it? Absolutely. Absolutely. My father didn't live in our household, but um, he was very much part of our household. My parents had a very amicable, amicable divorce, but um, it was it was rough. You know, when we had when we visited his sisters and, you know, they they were they were always talking about having their passports um, current they always wanted to, they were, you know, our family was always looking for the nearest exit. Okay. And then I'll go to Jeanette. What was it like living with your parents in Venezuela? You have to unmute yourself. I'm sorry. Jeanette, unmute yourself, please. There we go. Yep. Sorry. Uh, um. Rosa said, uh, talked about it a little bit, and I talked about it in my introduction. To me, it was not so much as living with my parents, survive, Holocaust survivors. It was uh, the way our family was structured that made me a little bit sad. I saw my, my friends who had cousins, who had aunts, who had uncles, grandparents. So for, but that was not my, then my parents ins incited on me. It was just reality, history that our, our family was killed uh, during the Holocaust. But um, otherwise, I wouldn't, I think, I wouldn't, I don't know, let's see if Rosa says something else, but I wouldn't think that um, the Holocaust per se affected the way we, were, we grew up or the way my parents treated us. I don't think so. I, I never felt it. Rosa. What about you, Rosa? Well, um, a few things come to mind. Um, I think education um, and uh, became very important. Or oh, okay. uh, uh, that, and that—I mean—that comes from just the tradition. But my dad used to say, "You got it. What they, what you have in your head, nobody can take away from you." Um, and that has become a real sort of like value not only of the children were all educated, but our grandchildren. So it's like, there's everybody, the next generation, the third generation, and I'm assuming the little ones as well. Um, I think there was a bit hypersensitivity uh, in general to, um, it was, I think it was harder for them to build trust. Um, and um, and I think they felt most at home when they were around their own. Like my mom would feel at her best in Israel um, um, and my dad as well. Um, so I, I would say that um, 
So that, that but remember, um, I think the sort of like the difference between Janet's experience and mine are really, Janet, Janet was in the, I think, survival and adaptation phase of the family, and then she went away. Um, then she got married to, to study. I was in the thick of the emotional side, um, you know, so more rooted on the demons coming back up. Um, so that's what I can say. So my next question, which will be the last question, and I don't know enough about your background, Jennifer, so that if you feel comfortable stepping into this question, do so. So I know that both uh, Jeanette and, and Rosa are married. They have children and grandchildren. So what was it like to come and bring your spouse into your survivor home? Okay, well, um, first of all, for my, in my case, there was no issue, nothing, because my parents did not, um, I would say act as survivors. I don't know, Rosa, there was, a, in Maracaibo, there were very few survivors. So my parents never discussed with their friends, even though they had very good friends in Maracaibo, they didn't discuss the Holocaust very much and they didn't tell their story because they said nobody would believe everything that we went through and still be alive. So they want to understand because they didn't live in it. So uh, for me, it was not an issue. We knew, I knew my husband, we were neighbors. We remember them, um, remember, no, I will tell you, Maracaibo had a communi Jewish community of at the most 80 families in its best time. And we were all friends. So my husband was living in one and living in Maracaibo also. We were both from the same place. We knew each other from childhood. We our parents were best friends. We were invited to his house, household where there are Jews from, uh, from Morocco and Romania, but that right in Venezuela in the, in the 20s. So not a relation, quote unquote, with the Holocaust. So we knew each other and we were best friends and we had very good relationship. So it was just a flow into the family, the same way, nothing to do with the Holocaust. Just same the family. And the same thing for you to his family? Yes, the same. I'm telling you, every holiday we went to their family. Uh, no, 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 no issues. It had nothing okay. to do with Holocaust. Okay, Rosa, I don't want to put you on. There were other issues, but not Holocaust. <laughs> Rosa, I don't want to put you on the spot, but if you're willing to answer the question, go ahead. Sure. So I married um, an Israeli. His name is Chaim uh, of Romanian parents, also survivors of the Holocaust. In his case, his family um, um, emigrated to Israel, so he had a lot of family. He had a lot of, uh, but very, um, he's very, it's the Holocaust, um, He's, he's also a psychologist and the Holocaust really is a very um, sort of sensitive and touches uh, touches his heart a lot. So um, so we had a lot of similarities around being children of Holocaust survivors um, on like Janet. I would say, um, and, and my story is slightly different for a complicated bunch of uh, details that are just personal of where I was and how that all happened. I would say that that um, that I, in general, I think there was an element of suspiciousness that my parents had, um, and that was true 
more for me um, maybe than for Jeanette because they grew up, she married somebody that they grew up next to, that my mother played cards with, that my father visited uh, their business. In my case, in my brother's case, which we married Israelis, I think they were a little bit more like, hmm, on the fence. Um, I have to say that that changed and they both had a, an incredible relationship with Haim. Uh, especially my mother, because my father, of course, uh, passed away um, um, earlier than my mom. My mom really appreciated him, but it wasn't it wasn't immediate. Okay, and Jennifer, if you, I don't want to again uh, force the question on you, but if you have anything to contribute, please. Yeah, I'm I'm not a survivor, and nor were my nor was my family. So I don't want to present myself that way. Um, I, I will say this. I married a non-Jewish man and my Aunt Rita met, my Aunt Rita and Uncle Arnold met William and they had, they said, we have one question. What's your position on Israel? And as soon as he answered that, they said, welcome to the family. So um, that's, that's really the only way um, their experience affected their perception and welcoming of future um, family members and people. Okay, thank you. And I'm now going to open up the uh, program to our audience and I'll change the view here for, so it's, are there, again, I wanna show you that there are, if you go to the, the toolbar for Zoom, there's quite a few people here. So I want to, you'll look at my tile and I just raised my hand through the reactions button. So if you have a question, just hit the reactions button. You'll see that it says raise hand and you'll be able to raise hand. If you also uh, have a problem with that, just raise your hand and I will try to find you or talk because you then come to, when someone raises their hand, they come to the front of the screen. So it's easy for me to see. I see Yvonne raising her hand down there. So, and I got Ruth, I'll get you next. So Yvonne, please unmute yourself. And share I think your I am unmuted. Okay, go um, ahead. I, I have a comment to each of the speakers, um, both very, very interesting, and thank you for your presentations. Um, the Laban, I, I am familiar with the Labensborn program. I've heard of it before. What is the movie that you referenced at the beginning that you asked if we had seen it? So it wasn't a movie, it's an Amazon um, Prime series, oh. and it's called The Man in the High Castle. It ran for four seasons, and it imagines a dystopian world, 1962, in which the United States is part of the Reich. Okay. Right, and I want, I want to caution anybody to watch this series. It is disturbing, and if you are have Holocaust, or, you know, Holocaust in your background, you may want to watch the trailer before you deep into the program. So Ruth, nice to see you. And I want to say to you, I think you have a very special day yesterday. Is can, that right? I, can I finish my comment? I didn't oh, know. I'm sorry. I thought you were. No, that was to uh, to Jennifer. But uh, to Jeanette, um, I, I, I'm, I don't know if any of you are in San Diego, but we have the film festival, Jewish film festival, just started a few days ago. And on Thursday, I saw the movie De Deadly Deception at Soberborg. And it's a documentary about the archaeological dig to dig up. It was just pure forest over it, had overgrown it. And the, an Israeli archaeologist and some others 
um, dug it up and they found the, the, the gas chambers and the, the pits that people were buried in, the mass graves and, and so on. It just uh, showed for the very first time this week in San Diego. So I'm sure it'll make other film festivals along the way, but we, we were fortunate to be the first and have the director there. So I thought that may be interesting for you to know. Yes. Okay. Very interesting. Now I'm finished. <laughs> All right. Hold on one second before you say something, Ruth. I want to um, acknowledge you and I want to make sure that everyone knows that you had a birthday and I think it's your 90th birthday. Am I correct? Yes. Okay. So I'm going to, because of that, I have something prepared for you and I was hoping that you would be on board with us today. So here we go. Today is brought to you by the letter R and the number 90. Hiya! Me, Cookie Monster, and me here. It's very important day. It's your birthday, and me got you a very special treat. Cookies! Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy! Nummy, nummy! Wait a minute! Me have to sing you super special birthday song! Music! R is for Ruth, that's good enough for me! R is for Ruth, that's good enough for me! It's Ruth's birthday, and Ruth starts with R! Happy birthday, Ruth! You are a star! That's right! Whose birthday is it? Ruth! Oh yeah! R is for Ruth, that's good enough for me. R is for Ruth, that's good enough for me. It's Ruth's birthday, and Ruth starts with R. Happy birthday, Ruth, you are a star. Oh boy, oh boy, oh boy, ha <laughs> Yeah, happy birthday! Now it's time to celebrate with cookies. Um, nummy, num, nummy, num, nummy, num, 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 num. Oh, happy birthday, Ruth. <laughs> happy birthday. Thank you. <laughs> Thank you, Jeffrey. <laughs> uh, I, I have, I have a comment for. Is it, is it Jeanette and Rose? Uh, you know, I you're psychologists and you've studied a lot, but as a as a child survivor, um, and I think I speak considering that I've been to a lot of meetings over my over the years, uh, for most survivors, yes, we some of us have adjusted and we live our normal lives, but underneath there's always that that rage and that sorrow that we lost our families and what was done and who did it. And finding out how and why, uh, Jennifer's probably done the best research for that sort of thing. We, we are puzzled about how people can get sucked into being that, well, insane actually, and, and mm -hmm. raped. And they were. I mean, I lived with normal people until um, my fifth birthday. And uh, from one day to the next, 
our friends and families were our enemies. They had been told that we were the enemy of the of the Reich and that uh, we needed to be eliminated, and they just believed it. Ruth, Obviously, Ruth, not everybody, I, or I wouldn't be here. But Ruth, Ruth, can I just ask you to give a little bit where you're where you were from, and so so everyone in oh. the audience could know a little bit about you. Okay, I was born in Vienna, Austria. And as you are all aware, Vienna was a cultural center, as was Berlin and, and most of Germany. Um, and, and from one day to the next, uh, instead of being a, a place where people enjoyed themselves and uh, uh, pursued uh, education and, and culture in general, it, it became... Uh, I, it's hard to describe, but from one day to the next, it was like living on another planet mm. because in my parents and I couldn't go anywhere anymore. Uh, they were, uh, they, they had a subscription to the opera. We went to museums, we went to parks, uh, restaurants and coffee houses. Vienna's famous for its coffee houses. If you were Jewish, you could not go to, into any of those places. And maybe some of you are asking, how would people know you're Jewish? They knew. Uh, uh, Vienna was like a lot of cities, just a little bunch of villages. So everybody in our neighborhood knew everybody. And there was no way to actually pass, especially if you were dark like I was. And my parents were had dark hair. But I I wanted to tell you that that with all the with all the psychology and all of the pretense of living normal happy lives and I raised normal happy children and we we lived a quote unquote American type life uh, underneath there was always that rage and sorrow and watching a show about the Nazis or even about the Holocaust will dig all of that up and. Even now, after uh, 80 years, I find myself weeping uncontrollably about something that triggered something. So it does not go away, is my point. And um, I did want to thank Jennifer for all of the research she did, because that could not have been easy. I've written several books myself. And when I started research, I wound up crying a lot. And, and 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 just outraged and uh, puzzled. Um, so it's it's not an easy job. And and thank you for writing the book. Thank you. I'm done. <laughs> Robert Wolf has a question. Okay, I thought. Can you hear me? Yes. I thought Roni was ahead of me, but anyway, um, quick question for, uh, so I lost her, uh, Jennifer, but first I want to uh, say thanks, Jeffrey, for meeting and inviting me to uh, do one of these in August with you, and I look forward to that. I'm Rob Wolf. I'm a radiologist. I, I live in Florida. I was raised in Detroit, lived half my life in Michigan, half my life in New England, just the last few years here down in Florida. I met Roni the other day. Nice meeting and seeing you here again, Roni. She's another Amsterdam publisher like me. And uh, I came to support Jeanette as well. And the other authors, Jeanette and I are friends here in Florida. We had a little tete-a-tete-a-tete-a-tete, uh, tete, 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 more authors uh, all together, uh, same publishing company. And we have to do more of those and collaborate on ideas about uh, how to spread the word 
about anti-Semitism and the Holocaust and on and on and on. Uh, and in my case, persecution of the Jews in general, because my book covers, uh, my book is Not a Real Enemy, the true story of a Hungarian Jewish man's fight for freedom. Uh, Tibor, I want to ask Tibor, I assume that's a Hungarian first name. Just give me a little wave if it is, because I hope you read the book. And uh, I hope everybody reads the book here. And, and I hope uh, everybody attends my my conference too in, in, in August, because I have a speech and I, I like how you set up your forum. And uh, I guess that's about it for uh, my own uh, kind of summary, but uh, the book's well done. It's about 400 pages, 40 stories. It covers World War I to the end of the Hungarian Revolution in 1956. My dad uh, was a multiple escape artist, uh, two, you know, two forced labor camps, and once as a med student, and finally after the Hungarian Revolution in 56, he got out. And so ironically, you were talking about Vienna, and my book actually ends in Vienna, which is pretty cool. Literally, the last page is Vienna. <laughs> so... Uh, so I'll leave you at that. I don't want to spoil it. A lot of great cloak and dagger stories, forged papers, hiding places, a man on the run for months. And then after the war, it took months to find out what happened to my dad's parents who were deported to Auschwitz, as was my mom's grandfather, who was a rabbi. So so I'm and we I'll talk about my dealing as a Holocaust descendant, you know, Holocaust survivor descendant when it's my turn, when I do my thing. But I do have a question for um, for uh, let me find her. Where's she? Jennifer. So if the with this breeding program that the Nazis did, when what happens if they because, you know, Down syndrome occurred and birth defects and, and other things like that, did they kill those kids? If the kids didn't end up to their uh, to their liking, to their fitting, were they just exterminated? Were they put into forced labor camps themselves? I mean, because it it's horrible. They killed their parents. I mean, let alone what happens if the kid just didn't come out right. What, what did they do with those kids? They were exterminated. Predictably, right? I mean, yeah, yeah. I will just say briefly, um, um, there was a program in Germany, it started in Germany called the T T4 program, um, stands for Tierengartenstrasse number four, which is the address of the villa where the program started to, um, they euphemistically called it a euthanasia program for adults and children who um, were, in their eyes, lesser because of um, disabilities. Thank you. That's an interesting book. I mean, that's that must have been hard to write, especially uh, you must have really been fascinated by the topic. Obviously, you are. It's heartfelt. Well, well I'll tell you this. Um, I I know I I know what you mean. I um when you say there are a lot of tears in the writing, Ruth. Um, when you talked about the tears, um, there were a lot of dark nights at the keyboard. But I think because I am too, I am a generation removed from this, and um and did not experience firsthand um, oppression by the Nazis. I think I was able to have a little bit more emotional distance from this. And what my overall feeling was, is I, I was deeply saddened by man's inhumanity toward man. But moreover, I felt really fortunate to be able to tell this story and share this information and I felt um I, I don't want to sound corny but I felt really blessed I feel really blessed to be able to um to talk about this program that and I'm getting pushback on it I'm getting people saying this never happened the somebody a representative of Norway said we weren't involved and um like so there's deny denial of this program too and I want to be uh, I 
I am mission driven on this book. And my mission is to let the world know that this happened and that this is page one on the fascist playbook, control the women, control their reproductivity. And that's why I feel um, I was saddened by writing the book, but mostly I feel driven and fortunate and blessed to be able to tell the story. Jeff, you're on mute. Jeff, you're muted. Jeff, your lips are moving. Yeah, you... Okay. I just wanted to invite everyone who's not on camera to join us on camera because it makes it much more of a interactive experience. So I know Abe, you're there. And I know I would love to meet some people here who I haven't um, previously met, which is uh, there. Um, so please join us uh, on on camera if you care to be on camera. I have some friends also I want to we have a lot of authors in the in uh, in the midst here. Mark Newhouse, raise your hand. There, has a, he's great, done a great book called The Bookkeepers. Um, Bookkeepers, go ahead, Mark. Unmute yourself and just tell me. I, the, devil, yeah, the devil's I book. The devil's bookkeeper. I'm sorry. You have Ava Marami. Raise your hand there. Uh, and the hidden recipes. Uh, is it right? Am I right? Hidden Recipes, a Holocaust memoir, fab, fabulous book. Um, and I have Ronnie Robbins, who's going to be part of our Hamashoah uh, three-part series. And she's presenting next uh, in April. Uh, so you have your hand up. So Ronnie, you have the floor. Go ahead. Thank you. I, I just thank you to the authors. You know, we, us authors, we're all studying um, somewhat what, what you all are, how you're presenting. You did a magnificent job both of you um i know um that um it takes a lot to write a book and i appreciate your efforts and good luck to you uh jeanette you're from the same publisher as i am um jennifer um i uh, during both of your conversations i i took just a moment to look further into your background jennifer it looks like you're a journalist also um i did read i wonder um, if um, Martha Hall Kelly, Martha Hall Kelly, Lilac Girls has a bit of this um, about um, the um, this whole effort to to um, uh, have birth from birth raise Aryan children. Um, I and I also saw where she might have given you an endorsement for your book too. Um, so uh, early advanced praise or something. Did did her book inspire you in any way about this? Because I believe she her book came out, Lilac Girls came out before yours. Uh, again, it just has a small portion of this and I'm looking forward to reading more about it. Um, did, did she inspire you in any way? She inspired me in every way. Um, Lilac Girls was one of my favorite books. It was published in 2016. And it told, I had never heard of Robinsbrook or the rabbits who, um, these young women who were sadly the subject of Nazi experimentation. I had heard of Nazi experimentation, of course, but these women at Robinsbrook and I, when I learned about the Lebensborn Society, I thought, I want to do that too. I want to shed light on a lesser known wrinkle of history of Holocaust history. And um, 
and do it through the perspectives of three women. So not only did she inspire me in that way, I looked in the back of her book and I saw which developmental editor that she worked with to uh, to polish her manuscript. And I called and hired that one to work with me. So yes, Martha Hall Kelly is an, a great inspiration to me. And fortunately, um, I, I can call her a friend now because I, I had the good fortune of, of crossing paths with her we connected beautifully and she is has been really helpful to me as a, as a new author in this space okay thank you thank and you. i see um joan your hand is up and i'm going to get you anna next after joan so go ahead hello everybody um my father is a child survivor of the holocaust they were in czechoslovakia slash hungary um but Growing up with my grandparents, and it wasn't discussed at all. Um, and I don't know how much your families told about their experiences. I had a little, th I mean, they talked about Cossack coming into the village and cause, you know, doing programs. Um, I know they didn't believe that the Nazis would come and they would kill Jewish people. My grandfather had come here, but it was very hard to convince my grandmother to come and bring her kids, which is the only way they got in because he was already working in this country to raise money and he was going to go back to Czechoslovakia. Mm -hmm. um, so I, I just wonder what other families experienced about parents, grandparents sharing stories. Well, hold on. Before we get any answers, I want to get some more questions, but I want to introduce Tibor and Naomi, who are child survivors like your parents' father was in in Hungary, Czechoslovakia. So Tibor and Naomi, raise your hand. So, uh, And both of them are going to be presenting during the um, Yom HaShoah series to the group. So we're really excited to have that presentation. And if you want to, Joan, um, Tibor did a testimony this Wednesday in our Havara, which is on the jcrnow.com website and our YouTube channel and the museum that I really would want you to listen to because he really gave a great accounting of what his childhood was like. The, okay. question, the, yeah. question, the question that you're asking is a difficult one at this time because we're going to run out of time. So right. I just want to get to, um, I know Anna, you have to unmute yourself. Uh, to speak, and I want to uh, say hello to you. I don't know if you have, have you been at one of these events before? So I want to welcome you. No. I'm thankful that you were, uh, took took the time today to out of your schedule to join us. I hope you are enjoying what you're seeing. Please ask your question. Well, I, I don't actually have a question. I'd rather say that um, I sit in, I'm in England and I come from Czechoslovakia, from Czech Republic. And of course, I feel, because many of you are in America and I feel it's a little bit different experience. I'm a child of uh, Holocaust survivors who, who have survived by, by, by emigrating. And, um, but all their families on both sides were killed. And I very much identify with what one of your readers said that I grew up without any relatives, not a single one. But I also grew up in a totalitarian state, which makes it more understandable in a way when 
questions are raised, how come people in Germany believed in certain things and followed rules. And growing up in a totalitarian state gives you actually a very good view, you know, a very good angle and perspective into how this is possible, how propaganda works. And um, I just want to just also add that at least here in England, the, the handmaid's handmade tales by Margaret Atwood is very, very, very popular and and it's very much about a program to, to breed children. You know, it's the same topic. And Margaret Atwood said herself that everything she has written in her dystopian novel, all of it has already happened. You know, it's a dystopian world. But the vision, this has all already happened in, in history. And um, I also published a book just in October, which is called In the Blood, here in the Blood, in England. And um, it's a book about silence and about why so many things are not talked about and why this silence in those kind of families persist and about what it's like to go and search if there are any relatives alive. I mean, it's a novel, it's a plot, it's a novel, but uh, it's about someone who is looking for relatives, who is compelled to look for relatives and what happens when she finds or doesn't find them. Anyway, it's a very interesting group and I, I'd like to come again. Well, we'd love to have you. We have a we have a event on Sundays every third Sunday of the uh -huh. month. So uh -huh. um, you know, if you, I'm gonna, I'll send you a little note in chat. And I know that Saul is back. And Saul, you wanted to add your comments, so you're you have the floor next. Hopefully, we didn't lose you. Saul looks like he disappeared again. Ruth, you have your hand up. Go ahead. Uh, I had to unmute. Go ahead. All right, go ahead, Saul. Go ahead. Um, I was interested in uh, Jennifer, and uh, uh, I know from my writing a book, and uh, I give credit to anyone who, you know, tackles this subject. It's uh, it's a very difficult subject, and uh, it took away a lot of emotional uh, stress that. Uh, made me, you know, very depressed during the time frame that I worked on my book. Uh, I was just wondering how that affected Jennifer, who really uh, is not a uh, second generation Holocaust survivor, uh, whether it impacted her emotionally the way it did me. Before you answer that, Jennifer, I just want to say uh, Saul's book is called From Brooklyn. Uh, from from Bergen Belsen to Brooklyn, it's about his parents who survived um, survived uh, Bergen Belsen and death marches. So, uh, and he's a great friend, also part of the second generation group. So, go ahead, um, Jennifer. You're on mute, Jennifer. Sorry. I really appreciate what you're saying, Solomon, and I I feel like I know how hard. Well, I don't know how. It must have been really hard for you to write that book. It was hard for me, but my overall sense was one of feeling really um, 
fortunate to be able to share the story. So it was a, a, a mix, but mostly I felt driven. I would love to ask the group a question while I have the, the green light around the screen. If there are any survivors of Theresienstadt, Theresienstadt um, I am working on another book right now um, uh, that is set in Theresienstadt. Because my question in writing this book, um, Cradles of the Reich, was persistently, how does this happen? How does this happen? How does this happen? And the answer was um, propaganda. I really wanted to take a look at one of the worst cases of propaganda, which was the Nazi show camp to Reisenstadt. So if anybody knows someone who survived this camp, I would love to connect with them to, to speak. Well, Anna, Anna is raising her hand, but I well, also I have do. a- Yeah, I, I do. Also... And Theresienstadt is in Czech Republic. I've just recently visited it. And all my family went through Theresienstadt, but I also knew people who survived. And I know the film Jennifer is talking about. I've seen the film, which was- I was, I, uh, I, no, so not- Cross. Yeah, no, not by Red Cross. It was made by the Nazis. It's a film which is called Truth and Lies. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So so Jennifer, I have a contact for you who survived Terezin. I'll be you. happy to send it to you. And I also have uh, um, Johnny Young from uh, London. And I don't know if you know uh, Anna Johnny Young from, uh, he's mm -hmm. also a child of Terezin. Mm -hmm. He went into Terezin at, at six or nine months old mm -hmm. and survived. So mm -hmm. I'll get you those two. I'll make introductions for you. I wanna say hello to Agnes. Shipper, who also has a book from Amsterdam Publishing. We've been talking about Amsterdam Publishing, who is uh, just de developing tremendous content on this subject. And many of those authors are coming forward and I'm presenting. Um, back to, uh, where are you? Uh, I'm just looking for you. I wanted to say, there's another person from Czechoslovakia that I wanna present. Ava Maremi is here with us, great friend. She's from Minneapolis, Minnesota. Her book, her mother and father came um, from um, what was the city in Czechoslovakia? Košice. Yeah, Košice. Košice where, where my where my mother was born, and mm. um, I didn't know um, Ava prior to starting this group, so that's a terrific find. And she, you came to the United States from Czechoslovakia when sixty four was it? I left uh, one year after the uh, Soviet invasion which was in 68, I left in 69, and I arrived to United States in January 1970. Okay. So, so I am from Czechoslovakia, but Hungarian parents. Gotcha. So I'm like a mixture of Czechoslovak and Hungarian. <laughs> and Agnes, if you can unmute yourself and let everyone know the title of your book, that would help. So everyone can know you too. So hello, nice to see you. Um. Yeah, it's, it's called Sabine's Odyssey, A Hidden Child and Her Dutch Re Rescuers. And Sabine is my mother, and one of the Dutch rescuers uh, was my father, a member of the Dutch resistance. Okay. okay. Do we have any other questions? That's it. I just okay. wanted to, Jeffrey, I just wanted to uh, really give Kola Kavod, it's Hebrew for uh, the highest honor to all of the people that have taken the uh, initiative to go and write 
these books because, uh, you know, there are so many Holocaust deniers and it's wonderful that uh, we have people and uh, I appreciate people like Jennifer who uh, really aren't, uh, you know, uh, children of Holocaust survivors who, who have taken the initiative to bring up a topic which is really, uh, it, it's beyond comprehension how people can want to like create a, a, a distinct race. I mean, that that is like outrageous. So thank you, Jennifer. All right. So Thank Abe, you. I want to say hello to you. So Abe, unmute yourself because you have a little bit of a story about the deep de uh, the um, the camps that you, the um, I'm mistaking the word, but you can fill it in. Displaced persons. Displacement persons camps. Yes. Yeah, sorry. I'm sorry. Yeah. Not, you don't mean me, right? Oh, you no, said no, Abe. I'm sorry, Abe. Abe, okay. just say what, which displaced persons camps were you born in, and when? I was born in uh, Feldafing, Germany. It's uh, one of the largest uh, DP camps that was created. And uh, my wife's parents uh, met and married in Bad Reichenhall. So last May, I got a group of 20 people to uh, visit Felderfing and Bad Reichenhall. And it was a wonderful experience. Uh, the German people uh, there that helped us uh, get there and, and showed us the former camps were wonderful. And uh, we were able to stay at the Elizabeth Hotel, which was a hotel prior to the war, but it came became a hospital um, after the war. And I was actually born in that um, hospital. So I kept looking around to see if there was anything. I'm just kidding. But uh, yeah, it was a great experience and uh, I'm uh, looking forward to talk about it in the future. And you're going to be presenting so uh, in during our Yoma show a program as well. So it's terrific that you're on board. Uh, Thank you. I'm thrilled and honored to have all of you as friends uh, joining us on our Sunday events every month. It's terrific to get to know you, to spend time with you all. Uh, and so uh, this is coming to an end. I'm going to end it by telling you our next event is March 19th. It's a very special event. It's about singing and the Shoah. And Zola um, Schumann from Cape Town, South Africa, Judah Tillerman from Chicago, Illinois, in the United States. And we had Robin um, Bernstein, and I don't know if she's still with us, but Robin Bernstein is, oh, Robin, I'm going to unmute yourself. So why don't you tell quickly what you are all about and uh, nice to see you and meet you finally. I thought I saw you there. Yeah. Yes. Okay, good. Go ahead. Tell us what you do as an artist mm -hmm. and how you uh, spin your art literally into uh, memorable, memorable Shoah uh, experiences. Uh, thank you, Jeffrey. I, um, my work is all about the Holocaust. I am not a survivor. My parents were not survivors either. I found this aspect of the conversation very interesting uh, because who is going to continue to carry the stories? It's um, oftentimes the art and the music, uh, people that uh, present the history over a long term. That's an interesting conversation. 
um, I've made us an 18 work series uh, using string. Uh, most of it is old string that was found, that I found uh, from Europe from the turn of the century through the mm -hmm. 1960s. And what I do is I press uh, thousands and thousands of tiny little cut pieces of this colored string into wax. Uh, the wax acts as an adhesive. Um, the pieces are, uh, they take a long time, sometimes up to six months to create each one. There are 18. Uh, I've been working, I made the series over a period of 13 years. Um, and it's uh, stories of the Holocaust, lesser known crimes, stories of redemption, uh, of a variety of uh, more well-known topics. Um, so that's that's what I do. <laughs> and the program is is basically going to be on March 19th on Zoom Sunday. It's called The Songs and Art of the Holocaust. So I hope that you come and enjoy a completely different way of looking at the Shoah um, through music and through art. So we're I'm really excited to put that program together, have Robin with us. Uh, Zola normally comes, but she's not here. And Judith was here earlier, but she had to uh, leave. So I wanted to thank you. I'm gonna let us go out on one more song uh, and then we'll all say goodbye to each other. So hold on a minute. I hope it's a good song. It is. <laughs> okay, hold on a second. توی کوچه رخصیدن برای ترسیدن به وقت بوسیدن برای خواهرم خواهرت خواهرامون برای تغییر مغزها که پوسیدن برای شرمندگی برای بیپولی برای حسرت یک زندگی معمولی برای کودک زبال گرد و آرزوهاش برای این اقتصاد دستوری برای این هوای آلوده برای ولی اصر و درختای فرسوده برای پیروز و اعتمال انقرازش برای سکهای بیگناه ممنوعه برای گریه های بیوقفه برای تصویر تکرار این لحظه برای چهره ای که میخنده برای دانش آموزا برای هاینده برای اجباری برای نخبه های زندانی برای کودکان افغانی برای این همه برای غیر تکراری برای این همه شعارهای تو خالی برای آوار خونه های پوشالی برای احساس آرامش برای خرشی پس از شبای طولانی برای غرصای حساب و بیخوابی برای مرد میهن آبادی برای دختری که آرزو داشت پسر بود برای زن زندگی آزادی برای آزادی
Okay, everyone, thank you for being here. I love you all, and we'll see you on March 19th. Thank Take you. Care now. See you. Bye bye. Thank you. Thank you to you.